open your Bible this morning to the book of Mark. So we're working through the, the Gospel of Mark. We come this morning to Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. Uh, we're going to look at verses 30 through 37 this morning. I want to read them and then we'll pray. God might open our eyes to the, the glories of the things here. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know about it. For He was teaching His disciples and telling them, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He's been killed, He will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask Him. They came to Capernaum, and when He was in the house, He began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. And sitting down, He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, He set him before them. Taking him in His arms, He said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me does not receive Me, but Him who sent Me. So let's pray. Oh Lord, today I would pray as we would open Your Word that we would God, see the truth that is here from the mouth of Jesus Himself. God, first of all, telling the disciples of what He would do. That He would be killed. And then continuing on to speak about who is the greatest. And I pray, O oh Lord, that You would sink deep into our hearts. God, press us where we would seek our own, where we would seek our own glory and our own aggrandizement. And we want to be like the atrophies and be first in everything. And I pray, O oh Lord, You teach us to be last. Teach us to receive the, the children. God, I would pray that at Rock Valley Bible Church You would create a, a humble people seeking not to draw attention to ourselves, but seeking to deflect all praise and drawing attention to You. So God, come now and soften our hard hearts and help us, O oh Lord, to learn the truths here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we work our way through these verses... I think the best place to start is in verses 33 and 34. Uh, these form really the, the core of what's happening in these verses. Jesus has says in verse 30 through 32 what's going to happen to Him. And um, He's going to go up and they're going to be delivered to the hands of men. They're going to kill Him. He's going to rise again three days later. And then after those, disciples get in an argument and they argue with one another about which one... Uh, the greatest is. And I feel like the reason for the argument is because they failed to understand Jesus' statement before. And it all, all hinges around here verses 33 and 34 because following then, Jesus speaks about who the greatest is. Saying that the greatest is the servant of all and the greatest receives lowly children. And the message this morning is entitled, Great in the Kingdom. As I, I think that's really the core of our text. When we see the disciples and 33 and 34 arguing about who was the greatest. Everything hinges around that. They didn't understand what Jesus just said, and He's going to go and give us two statements about who the greatest in the kingdom 
of heaven is. Now, if we just start piecing together this argument that they had uh, along the way, I think we can detect a little bit about what's taking place. You've got uh, Peter and James and John probably leading the conversation. I mean, these were the privileged three of Christ. They were with Jesus when others weren't. Remember when Jairus came and asked that Jesus would come and heal his daughter? And, and, and along the way, they received the news that, oh, your daughter has died. Trouble the teacher no longer. And Jesus continued on to the house because He knew He was going to do a miracle. He was going to raise this daughter from the dead. And as He got to the house, Jesus instructed His nine disciples to stay behind. And He said, Peter, James, and John, here, why don't you guys come? And maybe the room was small, we don't know, but he picked his elite disciples, if you will, pulled these three and the parents and was there, said Talitha Kum to the little girl, raised her from the dead. And it was only these three, Peter and James and John, who saw that miracle. I think they well could have argued that they were greatest in the kingdom. They were the privileged few. And that would have even been compounded when you think about the Mount of Transfiguration. right? When the glory of Jesus began to shine through His skin, and, and he began to radiate the fullness of deity, who he was. And, and it wasn't all the twelve disciples who saw him. Remember, nine were down at the base of the mountain, but three of them, Peter and James and John, got to see Jesus transfigure, got to see him talk with Moses and see him talk with Elijah. And, and they could very well argue, look, we're the privileged ones. We saw the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And, and we saw Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. And so they said, yeah, we're the best. No, you guys aren't the best. And they may have argued some miracles that they did on some of their missionary ventures, but they probably would have fallen short from what Peter, James, and John could have claimed. But I think of these three, Peter maybe even claimed the most, the most, claiming that I'm better than you guys. I mean, it was God revealed to me that Jesus is the Christ. I was one of the first disciples. It was me and Andrew, Andrew, my brother. And I was one of the first I was the spokesman, right? I'm the one that speaks up to Jesus. You guys don't speak up to Jesus, but I'm the bold one who does. I'm the one who said on the Mount of Transfiguration, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's build three tabernacles. I'm the one who speaks up. I'm the leader. I'm better than you guys. He's the one that say to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Mark 10, verse 28. In fact, even in Peter's mind, he lifted himself up above all the other disciples the night when Jesus was betrayed. He said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And even though if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. He, he, see what he's doing? He's just kind of lifting, lifting himself up to say, okay, everybody might fall away. All the eleven disciples, but not me, because I'm the greatest in the kingdom. And he may well have argued that. James and John, though, probably wouldn't be thwarted. They have their own arguments. Over in chapter 10, we see them coming to Jesus requesting the best seats in the kingdom. So apparently, Peter didn't shut down these guys. These guys were still going at it with Peter, trying to figure out who's the, who's the greatest. So the debate was far from settled. Even after Jesus gives several illustrations, they're still seeking to be great. Now, on one level, it's their sheer pride that would lift themselves up and say, oh, I'm the best. You know, the other level, I think it comes from a culture of spirituality in their day. See, it was in, super important in the days of Jesus to be put forth as having a, a super great spirituality. This is the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees were known to be the most spiritual people in the world. I mean, they, they were the ones who would sound a trumpet. Look at what I'm giving. Pull out their wallet and they'd put it right there in the, in the, the dropper to pay for poor people. And they wanted everybody to know how spiritual they were because they were giving everything away. 
They were the ones that stand tall in the synagogues and the street corners and, and bleed out their long prayers, grandiose. God, I thank You that You have made me this way. Look at how religious I am. Look at how righteous I am. They were the ones that would make their faces gloomy when they were fasting so that everyone would know. These are the ones that loved the places of honor. The chief seats in the synagogues. These are the ones that loved respectful greetings. Oh, call me rabbi. Call me teacher. Call me reverend. Call me the high and exalted one. These people set the standard of spirituality. And the disciples, I think, in the culture of the day, just said, if you want to be great, if you want to be great spiritually, be like your spiritual leaders. Right? I mean, it's the same today. If you want to be a great basketball player, right? You seek to be like Mike, right? I know it's an older generation, but people are still seeking to be like Mike. If you want to be a great football player, you seek to be like Peyton. If you want to be a great golfer, you seek to be like Mickelson. In the spiritual realm of the days of Jesus, you want to be great in the kingdom, let's be like the Pharisees and Sadducees. But the problem is the Pharisees and Sadducees got it all wrong. They thought that external religiosity was the path to greatness. But it's not the proud, the boastful, and the arrogant, and the gifted who are great in the kingdom. Rather, the kingdom, the people who are great are the lowly and the humble, the servants. Those are the greatest ones. Why? Think about this. In God's kingdom, who's going to be great? Nobody's going to stand against God. The only ones who are going to be great in God's kingdom are the ones that God takes down and lifts up. And who does He lift up? He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. It says in Isaiah 66, 1, or verse 2, I think, probably, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at My word. That's the one that God looks to. And that's the one that God will lift up in His kingdom So in verse 33, when they came to the house, he started questioning them. At least they knew a little bit what was what was wrong. He said in verse 33, he began questioning, what, what were you discussing on the way? And, and, and these disciples have been around Jesus enough to know that, you know what, they were probably wrong. Um, probably isn't the best to seek the greatness like they were seeking the greatness. Because when they knew this, they exposed the... They knew it was wrong. They were silent. Verse 34. They perhaps had guilt and conviction and sin or wrapped around their silence. They knew the discussion was shameful and inappropriate. That's why they kept silent. And really, before I get to my first point this morning, I do want to note, however, at this point, that many have assumed, because Jesus speaks against these disciples who sought to be great, that it's wrong to seek greatness in the kingdom. I don't think it's wrong to seek greatness in the kingdom. Uh, um, in fact, I'd argue that Jesus oftentimes says to seek greatness in the kingdom. It's just that seeking greatness in the kingdom isn't what the Pharisees were. Jesus puts a different twist on it. He, he encourages it to be a, a little bit different. Jesus, remember, says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But rather, store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to be rich and wealthy in the kingdom? That's a good desire. So don't store up your treasures here on earth. Store them such that your, your treasures will go ahead of you. Be great in the kingdom. But don't be great in the kingdom by amassing. Be great in the kingdom by giving. 
Lord Jesus also incurs heavenly reward. Use the talents that God gives to create and receive more. Remember the parable He gave of the talents. Right? One guy received five, one guy received two, one guy received one, and the guy who received five took and he produced five more. And so when the master came back, he said, here's the five you gave me, here's five more. And Jesus said that the master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, right? use the things that God has given you to, to increase them and multiply them. And the one who had two talents had less, still invested them. And, and Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. Yet when he had... The one was given only one talent and he hid it and didn't produce anything. Jesus was angry with that one. Jesus said, the master said, you fool, put it in a bank and at least get interest. And he didn't. But, but you think about what's that teaching. It's, it's teaching, use what we have to invest for later for eternity. Jesus encouraged sacrifice here and now for greater reward. In the generation when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for My sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Think about what He's saying. He says, if you left house or if you left farms or if you left mother or children for My name's sake, you will receive many times more. You want to receive many times more? You want to be great in the kingdom? You want to have many houses and farms? Brothers and sisters, well... Use it today and neglect it and sacrifice and serve Christ and you'll have it. And Jesus isn't arguing not to be great. He uses it. He puts a carrot in front. He says, be great in the kingdom. It's just the kingdom isn't here now. The kingdom is in the life to come. And when Jesus speaks about being great, He speaks about future greatness, treasures in heaven, responsibility in heaven, rewards in heaven. Seeking to be great isn't condemned by Jesus. It just looks different than what we often think about it. And so, the title of my message is appropriate here this morning, Great in the Kingdom. Or you might say it this way, How to be great in the Kingdom. Because true greatness comes not along the path of being a preeminent leader. True greatness comes on the path of humility and service. Edith Edith Schaefer, wife of Francis Schaefer, the great apologist, evangelist of last century, 1900s, was asked, Edith was, who's the greatest Christian woman alive? And here's what she said. Here's her perspective. I think it ties into here. She said, we don't know her name. She's dying of cancer somewhere in a hospital in India. In other words, Edith Schaefer, I think, is describing the life of someone who just spent a life of sacrificial service without fanfare, without recognition, without prominence probably lived a life moment by moment dependent upon the Lord because she had no resources in and of herself. And yet, she just gave herself and served others. And here it is, her dying days. She's still serving by, by pouring out prayers for the saints, just believing and trusting in God. That's true greatness. Because it's when you're through the difficulties when you're made a servant of all. That's true greatness. And we may never know who the truly great are. Well, this morning I have three points. We're going to start the first one, verses 30 to 32. And we'll skip over 30 and 34. We'll get to 35 and then finish up. So here's my first point. You want to be great in the kingdom? Here it is. Understand the mission of the Messiah. Understand the mission of the Messiah. Verses 30 through 32. It's where all greatness begins. It begins with understanding what Jesus came to be and to do. Again, verse 30. 
From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. He did not want anybody to know about it, right? He didn't want anyone to know about it because he's focusing his time upon the disciples. If people knew about it, they're going to be swarming and he's going to have the crowds, he's going to have lots of people, but he just wants a few. He wants his time with his disciples. And he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement and were afraid to ask Him. Now, once again, we find Jesus telling His disciples what's going to take place in the near future. His ministry is coming to an end, not because Jesus is retiring, but because He is going to be killed. Even look at what it says verse 31. And when He is killed, and they will kill Him. He's going to be murdered. That's why His ministry is coming to an end. But there's a hope of the Gospel that He'll rise three days later. His disciples did not understand the statement. Verse 32. They didn't understand the mission of the Messiah. They didn't understand that when Jesus came to earth, He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. No, what did Jesus do? He came to die for our sins upon the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve having the wrath of God fall upon Him so that it might not fall upon us. His reign and His kingdom would come after His death when He ascended to heaven to sit down at the right hand of His Father. Right now, He's just waiting for all His enemies to make a footstool for His feet and then He will come and every knee will bow to Him and every tongue confess. Someday His reign will be fully established, but it's just, it's just not now. The disciples, though, didn't understand these things. And that's why in verse 33 and 34 they were talking about who the greatest is. Because if they understood these things, they wouldn't be talking about who the greatest is in the way that they were talking about it. This is the core of where it started. If they had understood Christ's words, they wouldn't have been arguing with each other. And I say this, the disciples had no excuse. They had no excuse for not knowing that this was the plan of Jesus. I mean, notice this is the third time that Jesus has told them this. First time, back in chapter 8. Go ahead and turn back there. Mark chapter 8. Verse 29, Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And then in verse 31, if you write in your Bibles, I encourage you to do that. Look right here, 8 verse 31. Draw a box right around that. Put a number 1 here by the side. Because this is the first time that he's telling them the plan of the Messiah. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating, verse 32, says the matter plainly. Very clear what's going to be happening to him. Second time, chapter 9, verse 9. Draw a box around this and write a number 2. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen in the transfiguration until the Son of Man rose from the dead. How does he rose from the dead? Verse 10, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. So they say he's dead, but he's rising. What does that mean? He's stating it just again about what's going to be taking place here in the, the near future. And in our text, chapter 9, verse 31, this is number 3. And then in chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus saying the same thing. In chapter 10, look at verse 33. He says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles and they will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him and three days later He will rise again. 
Four times he's going to tell his disciples, I still don't get it. Anytime you have a teacher who's trying to teach people, it's the things that are repeated over and over and over and over and over again, which are important. This is important. Yet they still didn't get it. Jesus repeats it, goes to the same place, the same thing. I know oftentimes when uh, Avon and I are going to a place with our children, it, it often helps to prepare them. Right? We're going to go here. Oh, you know what? We're, we're going over to the dean's house, right? And I know you're going to get excited with the dogs, and I know it's going to be really fun, okay? But you need to make sure that you're calm and you're nice to the dogs or, you know, whatever. If that's, if that's never been a problem at the dean's house. But. But their dogs are there, they might be, or, you know, we're going to do this, and you might get excited about this. You need to kind of calm down, you're in reserve, or you need to, you're going over to your friend's house. Now make sure that when you go over there, four things, I always say neat, kind, courteous, and what are they, the four things? Neat, appreciative, helpful, and kind. I always just get them in a different order. But they're, they're kind of the, the thing, I haven't learned that lesson yet. I need to do that. Neat, appreciative, helpful, and kind. We just tell them that. When, when you're going, be, be these things. Just, just be neat. So don't make a big mess at their house. Be appreciative. Be thankful. Be thoughtful. Be kind. Be helpful. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing them for the day He dies. He's saying, he's saying I'm going up here. I'm going to die. He's just trying to prepare them, trying to help them. And, and quite honestly, a lot of times, if we prepare our kids, <laughs> it doesn't work anyway. Um, I think that's how Jesus felt. In all four of these statements, the different pieces to the puzzle, they're all complementary. Maybe they don't all say exactly the same thing. Um, need, appreciative, kind, helpful. I'm saying the same thing that Ivana is. Different words is what we're saying. Chapters 8 and 10, Jesus speaks about who is going to inflict suffering upon him. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. In chapter 10, he speaks about where his death is going to take place. He identifies Jerusalem. In chapter 10, the details of his suffering come out about how he's going to be mocked and spit upon and scourged. And after the transfiguration, most of the focus is just on the resurrection, but his death is mentioned there. But all in all, the thrust is very much the same. Suffering, death, rising again. Suffering, death, rising. And he's telling them that's what's going to take place. Suffering, death, rising. Suffering, death, rising. Suffering, death, rising. It's going to happen to me, guys. Know this. And... and and they, they didn't understand it. I mean, look again there, verse 32. It's amazing. They did not understand. What compounded the problem is verse 32. They were afraid to ask Him. I think they already felt the sting of what it means that they didn't understand. Remember, um, after the feeding of the 4,000, they're in the boat and Jesus says, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing how they didn't have any bread. They just had one loaf among the twelve disciples. And Jesus pretty much rebuked them strongly, saying, Remember, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet understand? And then he explained about, remember, when I just had, had the, the five loaves, and I fed five thousand. I had the seven loaves, and I fed the four thousand. And when I fed the, the five thousand, the five loaves, how many loaves did you get back? How many baskets full? Twelve big baskets full. And what about the 7,000 or the 4,000 with the seven loaves? How many baskets did you get back? He said, seven. He says, don't you understand? It's not about bread. I think they felt like rebuked. So they didn't even want to ask him because it should have been clear. Now, it's not that it's difficult to understand like this is upper level mathematics. Not like this is you know, differential calculus or anything like this. 
I mean, this is, this is low-level math facts. I mean, this is the multiplication table. I know kids sometimes think that multiplication table is like upper-level math, okay? But it's not. It's real simple, basic things that just require some repetition to take it. And, and I think the problem with not understanding the mission of the Messiah wasn't that it's mathematics difficult to understand. It was, it was, it was against their paradigm. Their paradigm is their view of life, how, how they saw life, because they saw... A Messiah who is lofty and exalted. He's going to be the political ruler. He's going to be the one that comes with power. He's going to be the exalted fist that says, yes, the Messiah, the King of all. And Jesus said, yeah, well, that time is coming, but that time is not coming now. Now is the time for suffering and humility. Isaiah 53 speaks about how He's going to go down first and then He'll be lifted high and exalted. In fact, that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, right? Remember that? Christ Jesus existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by being obedient to the point of death, even being fathomed this, death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But the path of Jesus to greatness wasn't just straight exaltation. It was humiliation first, and then the path of exaltation The path to greatness is letting God exalt you, right? And that's what Jesus did. He... He died a painful, shameful death and let God lift Him up and exalt Him. And the path that Jesus took is the path that we are called to mimic as His followers. Philippians 2, what I quoted for you, all starts with this statement, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, died, and then God exalted him. So our attitude as followers of Christ need to be like our leader and our guide and the author of our salvation. And he went through a life of suffering. And so that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. To live a life of suffering. To walk the Calvary road. The road that he walked. We walk the lowly walk. We walk the path of suffering for the sake of righteousness. We're the ones who return evil with good. We're the ones that when people afflict us and rebuke us, just as Jesus, when He was being reviled, did not revile in return. When He was being scoffed at, He uttered no threats. He helped entrusting Himself to God. When people slander us and come at us, we don't need to fight back at them. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. We say, vengeance, O Lord, is Yours. We'll go the path of suffering because that's the path of humility and that's the, the right path to follow. So Paul said in Ephesians 4, right there at the turn of the epistle, Therefore I entreat you, as a prisoner of the Lord, that you walk in a manner worthy walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. How have we been called? By God's gracious choice, His election of us, His kindness to us, lavished upon us in Jesus. And so likewise, we need to live lavishly gracious lives towards others. We need to live, as Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. 
The life of a follower of Christ will walk in the same way that Messiah walked. And I ask you now, here we are post 2,000 years, blind sight, hindsight 2020. Do you understand the mission of the Messiah? Do you understand the mission of the Messiah? Do you understand that true greatness is following in His path? Have you embraced the Gospel for yourself? Have you said, yes, that's what Jesus followed. That's what I'm believing. I'm trusting in His humiliation. I'm trusting that Jesus bore my sin. Because when you embrace the Gospel for yourself, that's when and only when you can embrace the humility that it requires. They did not understand the mission of the Messiah. Well, let's, let's go on. You want to be great in the kingdom? Understand the mission of the Messiah. Secondly, serve the lowest of the low. This really comes in verse 35. Sitting down, He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You see, just see Jesus calling a huddle. Okay? He's got this family meeting. After they're arguing about who's the greatest, they didn't even have to tell Jesus that what they were arguing about. Their silence told all. Like the, the kid, right, with cookie crumbs all over his face. Do you eat from the cookie jar? And he's silent. Of course he ate from the cookie jar. And he could read, he knew the hearts of men. He knew what these disciples were about. He had this family meeting, sitting down, even as what it says. He called the twelve to himself, and he says, Okay, there's one thing I want to tell you guys. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. You want to be first? Be last. Be a servant. Now, it's not the way the religious leaders, it's not the way the disciples thought. That's not the way that our world today thinks. That's the way of God's kingdom. That has not changed. You want to be first? You want to be the greatest? I think that's good. Let's be the first. Let's be the greatest in the kingdom. But let's do so by being the least and the servant today. Now, there's good news in this, okay? We all can do this. It's not like it's outside of our grasp. We all can be great in the kingdom. We all can be servants. Uh, Yesterday, two days ago, my father's 77th birthday. So, after church, you can wish him a happy 77th, right? So as a result of that, it was Friday night. One of his grandchildren had a baseball game, so we went down to DeKalb, had a wonderful, wonderful little evening gathering there. And my brothers and sisters and cousins, I'm not sure how many were there, probably 20 cousins, something like that. It was a good gathering. But one of my nephews <clears throat> had a T-shirt, the quote from Dr. Martin Luther King on the back of it. So I took a picture right here. That's Will. And I, he didn't even know I took the picture. I think he was texting or something like that or talking with his cousins. But... But I said, that hits my sermon exactly. Let's read it. All together. Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. I think Martin Luther King was reading from Mark chapter 10, verse 35. He understood that the path to greatness is the path of servanthood. And since all of us can serve, all of us can be great. So, really, here's the question. The question is not, can I be great in the kingdom? The question is really, am I willing to be great in the kingdom? 
That's really the question. And to be great in the kingdom means that today I'm a servant. It means I'm giving myself to people today. Now notice how I, I worded my second point here. Serve the lowest of the low. And I, I, that comes right out of verse 35. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I'm pulling that the lowest of the low from this word, little word all. He must be last of all and servant of all. Not last of most and servant of most. But last of all and servant of all. That means he needs to be the very last. He needs to be the very lowest. Willing to serve everyone above him. Because he's lower than everybody. So he's willing to serve the lowest of the low. That's what the word all means. None is beneath your standard. You're willing and ready and eager to serve Everyone. It means that, I just put a few categories here in my notes. People we need to serve. We need to serve children. We need to serve the poor. We need to serve the foreigner. We need to serve the minority. We need to serve the disabled. We need to serve the mentally handicapped. We need to serve the guy that always gets on your nerves. We need to serve the gal who always speaks only about herself. We need to serve the one who's hurting. We need to serve the sick. We need to serve the helpless. We need to serve the shut-ins at the nursing home. We need to serve the unlovable. Listen, and, and we're not above any of those people. We need to serve all. We need to serve anybody that you might think is low. Here's my question. How are you doing at that? How are you doing? Are you known as being a servant wherever you are? You want to be great in the kingdom? Be great. But be a servant. Be helping with everything you can all the time. How are you doing? Unless you get smug, I want to tell you a story that ought to be convicting to us all. I want to bring your attention to something that happened at Rock Valley Bible Church a couple of weeks ago. I was here preaching right here, halfway through my sermon, about 11 o'clock is what it is right now. It was 11 o'clock, preaching my sermon, and somehow two guys walk in the back. I saw them come from the door back there, entering from Alpine, and they came in the back, and they sat you know, right behind you, Phil. Right in front of you, Bradley, kind of right in those in those two spots, just just right there. They they came in and sat there. Now these guys were they're not not big guys. Um, they're my size maybe. Um, they were dressed in t-shirts and shorts. Obviously, they weren't too ready for church to take place. Uh, here's here's the best guess of what I think happened. I, I have no idea what happened. I think this is what happened. I think they either ran out of gas just right out here or their car had problems right out here, turned into a driveway. or I'm not sure what happened. But it somehow looks like they were out for a Sunday drive or something in it and their car stalled and they came in here. It's what it looked like. Um, maybe their hands were a little greasy. I, I can't exactly tell. But if some other explanation was there, it may well be my explanation is totally consistent with what I, I looked at these men and and they came in the service, and as I saw them come in, 
I was you know, very explicit about, yes, here in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, I was just kind of helping them along, like getting the context of where we were. And uh, I could see they, they pulled something off the, the, the shelf, the pew. I'm not sure where they pulled their Bible off. They pulled the hymnal off. They were kind of looking at it and looking at me. And I sensed they weren't really interested in things. Um, I was trying the best that I, I could do. Okay, But think about coming in here. It's totally quiet. We're not like, well, you know, not a lot happening. And they're kind of sitting there, oh, what's this about? Everyone's quiet, kind of listening to me. And I'm trying to think through what I can do to engage them or think through. Well, after about five to seven minutes, I failed. They got up and they left. And here's the stunning thing. Nobody moved a muscle in our church. Nobody moved. They walked right in, they sat there, and they walked out. And so I've talked to some people I've not met anybody who said, yeah, I saw them. Maybe they were angels. I don't know. I've not had anybody say, yeah, I saw them. I know them. I, I, I see who that was. So, like, if you want to be absolved of all responsibility, you know, the further you sit forward, you're, you're okay there. But, um, and I'm not saying this to try to blame back row people, okay? I'm the foremost to blame. I'm the foremost to blame. Maybe after they left, maybe I should have said, in fact, Phil told me, I told the story to Phil, he said, you ought to give me, you ought to give me the nod. So, so if this happens again, and, and I, like, I, like, <laughs> I like do something like this, Phil, that's like our signal, you need to get up. Or maybe when they left, I should have said, hey, um, Jerry, could you, go, could you go out there and just see what those guys are doing? I didn't. I, I, I felt like, I feel like I, I should have. Blame comes upon me. Um, I thought about calling out to them right in the sermon. Hey, welcome, guys. What's up? You know, maybe just disrupt the service. We could have done that. That would have been okay. We're loose enough around here. That could have worked okay. But here's what I'm saying. These guys were the lowest of the low. They're strangers. They're obviously not church people. They were in great need. Coming obviously uncomfortable. Obviously need some kind of help. Why else did they come to church? And nobody even attempted to engage them in conversation. Church family, listen, let's improve upon this. Let's improve. And I think these guys, you know, sometimes people visit church and they feel a little uncomfortable. People are uncomfortable visiting church. You can see it. Boop, 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 boop. Yep, they're uncomfortable. Try to do whatever you can to make them feel comfortable. That's an easy step. People come dressed a little nicer, ready to come to church. Maybe you're, you're a woman and you say, I don't know what I would say to them. Uh, like, well, like what, what, what would I say? I mean, I'm not going to speak with these rough-looking guys. And, and I, I think that maybe you say something like this. Hello, do you need help? Um, you know, we're, just, we're right through the service. It'll be about 11.30, we're going to finish. I know there's a lot of guys here in the congregation who can come and help you. Why don't you stay for a little bit and we'll help you. And you know what? If they, if they leave, um, that's okay. You can't, you can't help people who want to help only on their own terms. Right? We want to help them genuinely. Right? If it means any gas, it's not wise to give money to these kind of people. They just go out and buy booze oftentimes. We're going to help them. We'll fill up their gas tank. We'll help them with cars. We've done that before at Rock Valley Bible Church. And listen, I tell you this story not to shame you, but to say, you know what? It's the tendency of all of us is to be good. And we need the tendency of all us. We need to get down and we need to get low and we need to be a servant of all especially those who are low and who need help. So I want to just jolt you a little bit to say, hey, everything's not totally well at Rock Valley Bible Church. There's, 
There's a heart issue for all of us. There's areas of improvement if we want to be great in the kingdom. It means serving the low and the downcast and the needy. Well, let's go to my last point. You want to be great in the kingdom? Understand the mission of the Messiah. Serve the lowest of the low and finally receive the children of the church. I worked hard to get that one to sound right. Verses 36 and 37. And He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in His arms, He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me does not receive Me, but Him who sent Me. Now, this may well have been Peter's child. We don't know. But we know that they came back to the house in Capernaum. And the only house that we know in Capernaum is Peter's house. Mark 1. And the only one the disciples we know was married was Peter. Mark 1. It's all conjecture, but at any rate, there was this child running around the house. Took a, Jesus took a child into arms and said these astounding words. Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. Now, we need to catch the culture of their day. The culture is a little bit different than ours. We live in a child-friendly society today. Property taxes go to support the education of children everywhere. Our government has this policy, no child left behind. Now, whether it's working or not, that's still the policy. But think about what's behind that policy. The policy behind that is that we view children in America as precious. And we don't want to leave a one of them behind. We want to do whatever we can do so as to give them an education, help them have every opportunity to be successful. That's a child-friendly culture we live in. Our government has labor laws to protect children from spending their young years in a factory someplace, but rather we spend those years cultivating the mind and helping input them so they can be productive members of society. Our children have an abundance of opportunity and be involved in all types of activities, whether it's football, soccer, baseball, karate, ballet, gymnastics. They can learn any instrument they want. They can sing in a choir. They can do whatever they want. Just finances are the only limitations normally. And time. I've talked to enough parents who have been like, <laughs> all I'm doing, I'm running my kids around all the all this stuff. And my thought always is, so why are you running your kids all around all this stuff? But we have, we have way more opportunities for our children than we ever have time and resources to fulfill. It's because our society is very child-focused and child-friendly. We gladly opportunize offer opportunities for our children. Children, churches often focus efforts upon children. We've done that too. Because children are needy and we need to help them attract people to come to the church. And, catch this, when someone prays upon children, our society is irate. Witness Penn State University. Where does that come from? That comes from our child-friendly culture. And I say, praise God. Praise be to God for America and that priority. Praise be to God that there are many who will come to the defense of those children who are abused and wrongly treated. Now, we're not perfect. I mean, abortion is a huge slight on our nation in this matter. But overall, culture is very pro-child. I mean, all you need to do is go to a foreign land. Some foreign lands, maybe not all foreign lands. Right? We hear about how things are in Tanzania or how things are in the Philippines. Hear how things are in Mexico. Adriana is not here today. But we hear about how things are in foreign lands. It's just my exposure to things in Nepal. It's not like this. 
education isn't abundant. Kids will just labor to try to earn their next bread. Opportunity, they don't have opportunities. We just we are a child-centric, child-facilitating, child-friendly place. That's wonderful. Okay, it's a bit different in the days of Jesus. Chapter ten, where you see people were bringing children to him. Chapter ten, verse thirteen, so that Jesus might touch them and bless them is the idea. But the disciples rebuked them. Get away! He doesn't have time for the kids. Jesus, on the contrary, was indignant against them. It says, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And rather than looking down upon children, Jesus told His disciples to embrace them and receive them and welcome them. Jesus looked with favor upon children, elevated their importance in the mind of the disciples. And so, listen to this, whoever receives one of these little ones in My name receives Me. In other words, here's the deal. Treat children the way you would treat Jesus Himself. That's what He's saying. You want to be great? Whoever receives one such child like this in My name receives Me. You receive a child in the name of Jesus. You receive Jesus. Contrary, you reject a child, you're rejecting Jesus. You harm a child, you're harming Jesus. You love children, you're loving Jesus. See, there's this interconnectedness between Jesus and these children. Jesus loves the little children. He not only cares for the children, but He's concerned how you care for the children. In fact, the way you treat them is an expression how you treat Jesus Himself. And that's mere an expression God. God has a heart for the helpless. He has a heart for the widow. He has a heart for the orphan. He has a heart for the alien. He has a heart for those who have no rights in of themselves. They have no power in of themselves. The law all the time gives protection for these three categories of people. Widows, orphans, and aliens who come without any, with any help. God hates it when the helpless in this life are exploited. But God loves it when they're nourished and cherished and helped. And I just say this, don't back away from this connectedness. I mean, this is very real. In Zechariah, when Zechariah was trying to encourage the people of Israel who were in danger of being plundered by foreign lands, Zechariah 2.8 says, Thus says the Lord, He who touches you touches the apple of My eye. In other words, Israel, you are a precious people to Me. They're going to come and crush you, but know that in they crushing you, they're crushing Me. They're touching My eye. Whenever your eye is touched, what do you do? You always flinch and get away from it. They are touching a sensitive part of me. Just this encouragement, just there's this connectedness. When Saul was on the road to Damascus and blinded by the light of Jesus, the voice came from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was he persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting the church, but there was such a connection between the church and Jesus that Jesus felt it himself as Paul was ravaging the churches. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a glimpse of what the judgment would be like. And that day, Jesus will look upon how you treated the helpless, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And He will consider your treatment of them as your treatment to Jesus. And what's astonishing, that passage in Matthew 25, 
They're like, Lord, when, when did we see you naked or helpless or hungry or, or thirsty or sick or in prison? We don't, we don't understand. And he said, to the extent that you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And that's the idea here. Receiving a child is receiving Jesus. To the extent that you do it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. That's what verse 37 says, the same Spirit. And so here, here's obvious, huge application for us. Just screaming out of this. Can you guess? Rock Valley Bible Church? Nursery and Children's Church. Screaming. Hello. Serve the children of the church. Now, we don't know how big this child was. Every indication, maybe it's a small child. Jesus took the child in His arms, verse 36. May have been just one or two years old, maybe nursery. But maybe even more, I hold my five year old. In fact, I did that today. I hold him up so we sing the songs. I whisper in his ears the songs that are going to be sung, and then they get sung and, and whisper so that he hears and knows what's going on. But he's a five year old, I can hold him up. So we don't know how young, but I know it wasn't a sixteen year old. And so are we going to try that here? If I if I try to if I try to no, I'm not going to try that. That's <laughs> My back will go out and then, then we'll be done and we'll dismiss early. You might say, hey, that's wonderful. But some, some, kind of, some kind of small child, all right? We are taken in the arms. That is perfect. Children's Church Nursery. Right now, there are people in the nursery. Uh, the Christiansons are there. Um, I don't know who's teaching Children's Church today. Toby is. How perfect is that? I don't even know. That's true greatness. The only reason I happened to see Greg because I talked to him and then he kind of was, was in there with his wife, Michelle. But the important thing here isn't so much the age, but it is small. But the important thing is here is just the care for children. And I just want to encourage you, serve in the nursery if you want to be great. Say, what can I do to be great at Rock Valley Bible Church? How about in the great in the kingdom? How about serve in the nursery? How can I be great in the kingdom? How about help with children's church? That might be a way to be great. Not only is it great work, it's a good work. A good work, I would say it's a great work that's being done. Jesus looks highly upon your work. But for those of you who do serve, I thank you. And I just say this, as you do serve, view every child you serve as if it is Jesus himself, Jesus incarnate. And... um, I mean, you call them by their names, right? David and Wyatt, and you call them by their names. But internally, just say Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus. Because the way you serve children, the way you help children. You know, when we have snacks out here right afterwards, whether you're, you're serving in a formal way or not, having snacks out here and a child wants something, you say, yes, Jesus, what do you want? I'm serious. There is this connection. you you gotta, you got to... That's how much it is. You have a chance, Right? To wipe chocolate off of Jesus' face. To help him get a snack. That's how connected it is. So as we care for them, we teach them. And if you're in the nursery, pray for the children. If you have spiritual time, we just hold a baby in your arm and just pray for that child. And I appreciate your labor, much of which goes unnoticed. And we don't mention it very often from the pulpit here. I don't write enough thank you notes. But I say your reward is in heaven. And just trust that. I appreciate Nancy Reed and Toby Mitchell 
Nancy oversees the nursery. Toby oversees Children's Church. Their women are true servants among us. They just, they just do see that thing happen. And, and maybe this morning the Lord is urging you towards greatness as well. So sign up to help. That would be a wonderful way to do that. I know some of you can't. I mean, it's, it's difficult, your circumstance. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not pressuring all you saying this. If, if you can't, just be attuned to the children and help the children and encourage them. There is a reason why we do children's notes at Rock Valley Bible Church. I want the children to feel special. I want them to be helped. There's a reason why I noogie the young boys, right? And wrestle with them at Lake Olson after the baptism, right? There's a reason for that. It's because I, I love them. I want to care for them and nurture them and help them in every way. And I would encourage you all to do the same. It's going to look different for you, okay? Or we'll start being called the Noogie Church at Rock Valley Bible Church. But note the connection. But note there's also another connection. Jesus didn't stop here with just the children. He says, whoever receives me does not receive me, but receives him who sent me. There's a connection between Jesus and God the Father. You receive Jesus, you receive God. And I, you reject Jesus, you reject God. You hate Jesus, you hate God. You love Jesus, you love God. Because they are one and the same, of course. We've seen this connection already. We've seen in Mark chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus. The voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. God is well pleased with His Son. The transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? Listen to him. He's my mouthpiece. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke long ago to the forefathers in many portions, in many ways, but now in these last days he has spoken to us. How? In his son. His son is the, the, the voice, the mouthpiece of God. Jesus is the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of his glory, exact representation of his nature, sustainer of all things, purifies us through his death. He's the one that sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And receiving Jesus is receiving the Father. So the obvious question is, have you received Jesus? Do you accept the things you say? Or do you accept some of them and not like some of them? Or do you, how do you receive Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Here's what it is. Your humility will bear that out, whether you've trusted in Him or not. He is a glorious Savior. He's walked the path before us in His mission to die for the sins of those who believe. And Jesus served the lowest of the low. John chapter 13. He's the one that washed the disciples' feet when no one else was willing to wash them. And He's the one that received children like we ought to receive children. So we ought to receive Jesus. If you haven't done that, I just encourage you to do that. Trust in Him and be great in the kingdom. So let's pray. Father, what a good news this is, is that we all can be great in the kingdom. It's a matter whether we wish to or not or whether we want to or not. I pray, O oh Lord, that You would stir our hearts to want to. Give us hearts that that seek to serve others. and I know how hard that is and how we can be exhausted and there's still way more to do than we ever could do. God, I help you protect us from guilt. You won't call us to do more than what we possibly can. 
But I pray, O Lord, that when there are opportunities to serve, that You would stir in our hearts to show where we're arrogant of ourselves, where we're prideful, where we lift ourselves up. God, help us to lower ourselves. God, to serve others. Because that is what Jesus did for us. So it says in Mark 10:45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Thank You for His service to us in ransoming our souls from hell. Bring our souls to the glory of heaven through the sacrifice of Christ. So Lord, I pray that You'd help us Convict us, encourage us, comfort us, strengthen us. God, all this, you know what we need. And I'm just pleading that you would help us at Rock Valley Bible Church to be servants to all, to those we know, to those we don't know. To fellow believers and to the lost. May we love our neighbor as ourselves. May we be the Good Samaritan. God, help us, O oh Lord, in these things we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.